Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Please be advised. The following episode contains graphic scenes of sexual assault and murder. Parental discretion is advised. On the morning of Saturday, January 4th, 1964, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan woke up early on the sofa and smiled. Sullivan had arrived in Boston from Cape Cod after accepting a job at Filene's department store down on Washington Street. Being confident and personable, it didn't take her long to start making friends, and after a few months, was invited by two of her colleagues, Pat and Pam, to move in with them. Mary didn't mind that, with only two single beds and one bedroom, the best they could offer her was a couch in the living room. She was just grateful to be moving in with two people she liked, and into an area that she'd come to adore. 44A Charles Street was situated on the top floor of a three-storey building, just a stone's throw from her favourite pub, a small but lively place called The Sevens. The street itself cut a line through the vibrant Beacon Hill neighbourhood, a picturesque bohemian mix of old moneyed wealth and new immigrant communities, complete with cobbled stones and ornate gas lamps. Mary's smile that morning was one of contentment and new beginnings, not to mention excitement of what the new year might bring. While her flatmates would be spending a gruelling day at the store for the first weekend of the January sales, Mary, who was due to start a new job at a bank on Monday, had the weekend all to herself. At roughly the same time, about 70 miles to the south, at Mary's family home in Cape Cod, a letter arrived through the door from Mary, addressed to her 17-year-old sister, Diane. Of her four siblings, it was Diane who Mary was closest to, and the letter was the first Diane had heard from Mary since she left for Boston. Diane opened it with excitement and was soon buried in her sister's words. It was a thrill to hear how much Mary was loving life in her newly adopted home, and even more so to read Mary's invitation for Diane to come and visit her as soon as possible. 
It was sometime around 6pm later that evening back in Boston when Pat and Pam returned home from work to find the door slightly ajar. Assuming Mary had carelessly left it open, the pair pushed on into the apartment, making sure to lock the door behind them. Inside, the hall light was on while the rest of the apartment was shrouded in darkness. Pam was just about to call out for Mary when she caught the shape of someone in their bedroom lying propped up on one of the beds. It was Mary, sat with her eyes open, staring vacantly into space. Come on, we're putting dinner on, said Pam, a little bemused that Mary hadn't said hello when they came in. Mary, said Pam again, stepping into the room. But Mary didn't move. Pam flicked on the light, then screamed. Mary Sullivan had been strangled to death with a stocking tied tightly around her neck. Two other pairs of stockings were also found tied tightly around it. Ejaculate was said to have been found in her mouth and on her body, while a broom was left inserted three inches into her vagina. At the end of the bed, by her right foot, a card had been placed that read simply, Happy New Year. To the police called in to investigate, it was clear there was only one culprit. As it happened, Mary was the 11th woman in 18 months to be found dead in similar circumstances in and around the wider Boston area. Apparent victims of a single, vicious serial sex offender and murderer, dubbed the Mad Strangler by the press. In the course of those 18 months, the Boston police had made little headway in their efforts to apprehend him. Throughout the city, dog pounds struggled to keep up with demand for guard dogs, while home security devices were flying off the shelves, so lacking was the local faith in law enforcement to put an end to the horror. Previous possible victims of the so-called Mad Strangler ranged in age from 20 to 85. The fact that Mary Sullivan, the youngest victim, was only a teenager, provoked particular fury from the public. As a result, recently elected Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke stepped in personally to take over the floundering investigation. Within days, he set up a dedicated Strangler task force to concentrate solely on the case, appointing Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley to oversee the day-to-day running of it. After looking closer at the case history, Brooke was alarmed by just how little progress had in fact been made and resolved to leave no stone unturned in his efforts to find the perpetrator. Even still, few could have guessed that the force would become so desperate they would turn to a supposed psychic to help crack the case. Yet incredibly, that's exactly what they did. It isn't known precisely who suggested it, but not long after the task force was set up, the name Peter Herkos began cropping up in their regular meetings. Herkos, whose 1960 biographical documentary One Step Beyond had catapulted him into the public eye, along with a series of public performances over the last few years, 
was already somewhat of a celebrity by the time Brooks's team got in touch. There were even rumours that a Hollywood biopic was in the pipeline, with Hercos set to be played by Glenn Ford. Attorney General Edward Brooke received widespread condemnation for allowing a self-described psychic anywhere near the case. To others, however, who'd been following Hercos's steady rise, there was no harm in trying. After all, it wouldn't be the first time he'd apparently helped to solve a crime. To Hercos, however, it was simply something he'd been born to do. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Most nights I share a bed with a Pro Bowl quarterback, an Olympic swimmer, and a national soccer star. I should explain, when I heard how many elite athletes sleep on a molecule mattress and call it their best sleep ever, I ordered one for myself and soon found they were spot on. Molecule sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It's unlike any other mattress in a box. It's cool to the touch, unlike other foam mattresses. It has six times the airflow of my old mattress, so it keeps me cool all night. It has zone reflex layers that adjust with me in all my weird sleep positions, so I never awaken with a stiff neck or sore back, and it's antimicrobial. Molecule Mattress is how elite athletes and I get the best sleep ever. Sleep on your Molecule Mattress risk-free for 100 nights. If you don't have your deepest, most restorative sleep ever, return it. Visit onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED. Again, save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED at onmolecule.com. That's onmolecule.com. On the morning of May 21st, 1911, another scream echoed through the halls of the red-bricked terrace house on Vondelstraat in the centre of Dordrecht, an industrial port town just south of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Inside the bedroom, propped up on the bed, Apollonia Herc screwed her eyes up at the pain as another wave of contractions rose up from inside her. Gripping her husband, Jacobus's hand, she let out another guttural cry, straining with everything she had, until finally the baby's head began to emerge. With one final push, the head was free, followed soon after by the rest of the baby, as it slipped into the grateful arms of the midwife. But as Apollonia lay back exhausted, she saw the look of concern on Jacobus's face, and then looked down in horror at the wriggling body in the midwife's hands, at the strange, membranous material completely covering its head. The midwife urged Apollonia to stay calm as she clawed desperately at the membrane, then shouted for the doctor to come and help. Finally, after what seemed like hours, the doctor succeeded in uncovering the baby's mouth, and its cries soon flooded the room. Peter Cornelis van der Herk was born with his head covered by part of the amniotic sac, the vessel in which the fetus develops in the womb, surrounded by amniotic fluid. Most commonly, the sac breaks open prior to birth. However, for roughly one out of 80,000 births, the baby will be born either still inside the sac 
or at least partially covered by it. Due to the rarity of the phenomena, sometimes known as being born with the veil, or with the helm, as it is known in the Netherlands, cultures the world over have often tended to see it as a sign of good luck. Some believe babies born this way are destined for greatness, others that they will never drown. And some say those born with the veil will be gifted with the power of second sight. For the first six months of his life, due to the complications of his birth, Peter was unable to open his eyes and left effectively blind as a result. Though this would eventually be resolved and Peter's sight restored, shaking the circumstances of his birth, however, would be a different matter altogether. To his siblings, he was always somewhat of a strange child, prone to sudden bursts of intense emotion, who would run away for days on end whenever he got too upset. Sometimes he would disappear into the nearby woods, hiding out among the trees until he was ready to return. Other times he would take a canoe and head off down one of the many rivers and waterways that snaked their way around his hometown. In 1925, at the age of 14, Peter threw a pot of ink at his teacher and was promptly expelled from school. He ran away again soon after, except this time he kept on running, all the way to the docks where he took the first job he could find as a cook's assistant on board a merchant ship. After 12 years at sea, Peter returned home in 1939 and settled down after meeting a woman named Bea van der Berg with whom he had two children. The pair moved close to Peter's old home in Dordrecht with plans for a life together. The following year, the German army invaded the country. By this time, Peter was working for his father painting houses. With the German government now effectively controlling the Netherlands, much of local production and industry was refocused to support the German war effort. For Peter and his father... That meant being forced to paint the newly occupied government buildings. On July 10th, 1941, a by then 30-year-old Herc was stood high up a ladder, painting the facade of a four-storey building in The Hague, the seat of the newly installed Reich Commissariat for the occupied Dutch territories. Peter was stretching over to apply some more paint when the ladder suddenly gave way beneath him. After a sudden sensation of freefall, everything went black. Moments later, he was basking in bright warm sunshine, skipping through rich, verdant fields under bright blue skies, when suddenly all colour drained away. Peter opened his eyes to find himself surrounded by the cold, sterile walls of a hospital room, unable to move. As a doctor soon explained, despite cracking his head on the pavement from four storeys up, he'd somehow survived the fall and the subsequent operation to relieve pressure on his brain. He'd been unconscious for five days. Peter took a moment to adjust to his surroundings, with the light seeming especially bright. As he averted his eyes from the window, 
more light seemed to be seeping in from somewhere, followed by a strange swirl of sound. It was muffled at first, then soon grew into a chaotic cacophony. Peter clasped his head in his hands and yelled for the doctor to make it stop. And that was when it all began. One morning, while he was convalescing, Peter's wife, Bea, came to visit him in hospital. Peter later claimed his mind became flooded with horrific images of their young son, Benny, screaming at home, surrounded by roaring flames. He scolded Bea for leaving Benny at home. Shocked by Peter's behaviour, Bea eventually calmed him down, insisting that their son was being well looked after by relatives. Later that afternoon, she returned home to find all as well. Five days later, while Herc was still in hospital, a fire broke out at his and Bea's home. After becoming trapped by the smoke and flames, Benny had to be rescued by emergency services. A few days earlier, something equally strange had apparently occurred when a man that Peter didn't recognise came into his room to wish him a quick recovery. The man had also been convalescing at the hospital and had seen Peter come onto the ward. When the two men shook hands, Peter claimed later that he was suddenly overwhelmed with grief and the utter conviction that the stranger would soon lose his life. Two days later, Peter saw a picture of the same man, identified as a British agent in a newspaper. He'd been captured and killed by German soldiers. And still the cacophonous sounds and bright lights continued to plague him, as though he were suffering a perpetual migraine. It had also become apparent that Peter was suffering from severe amnesia, another common consequence of a serious head injury. Over time, both the chaos in his mind and the amnesia began to improve. After returning home, however, Peter's situation only got worse when he was picked up by German occupying forces and sent to Camp Foot, a concentration camp in southern Netherlands. Not much is known about his time at the camp, only that Peter succeeded in escaping it and managed to return home when he later joined the Dutch underground resistance movement, helping in a series of disruptive campaigns, blowing up bridges and railroads. It was around this time too that Peter changed his name from Herc to Herkos. At the end of the war, Peter received a medal from Queen Juliana for his participation in the resistance and found work in a coffee house. Back home in Dordrecht, though he may have been hoping to live the quiet life, Dordrecht was not an easy city in which to disappear and rumours about his apparent unusual powers were beginning to run rife. It was sometime toward the end of 1945, with the country slowly beginning to emerge from the fog of war, that Peter and his family were woken by the doorbell at 3am in the morning. Staggering to the door, Peter opened it to find a woman standing alone on the street, clearly in some distress, As she went on to explain, her husband had gone out a few nights before, but had failed to return home. 
Having heard about Peter's apparent gift, she wanted to know if he would help her find him. Peter looked to the clock in the hallway, then back to the woman. Realising just how desperate she was, he told her to go home and find an item of her husband's clothing to bring back to him. Half an hour later, she returned with her husband's jacket. Peter invited her inside to sit with him as he took hold of it and ran it through his hands, then sat back deep in thought. I see a football, he said. Yes, said the woman, her eyes lighting up in response. As she went on to explain, her husband was a talented footballer, but had a few days ago discovered he was suffering from a degenerative disease that would eventually leave him paralysed. He'd gone out drinking to drown his sorrows when he found out. Suddenly, Peter's lips turned into a frown. What is it? the woman asked, anxiously. Your husband is dead, he said flatly. I'm sorry. But how? she asked. As he explained, she didn't have to take his word for it, but if his vision was to be believed, she would find her husband's body submerged in an anti-tank trench on the outskirts of the city. Later that morning, Peter reportedly escorted the woman to the nearest police station to deliver his theory about what had taken place. Peter is said to have then led police to the deep, water-filled ditch he'd seen in his mind, where, after a short time looking, they found the missing man's cap caught in a nearby bush. After several days of dredging the ditch, the man's body was found at the bottom of it. As his reputation as a possible psychic started to grow around the world, Peter Herkos, who became known as the man with the radar eyes and the X-ray brain, began offering his services to a number of police departments throughout Europe to various degrees of success. In 1956, he was contacted by American parapsychologist Dr. Andrea Puharic. In the early 50s, Puharic served as a captain in the Army Medical Corps, where at some point he developed a fascination in the potential military application of paranormal phenomena. In 1955, after leaving the Army, he founded the Roundtable Foundation in Glen Cove, Maine, in order to study the possibilities further. After reading about Peter's apparent abilities, Puharich was convinced he'd found the perfect subject for his experiments and invited him to have his unique skills tested under laboratory conditions. Peter, who had by then separated from his first wife, Bea, took up the invitation and arrived in 1956 to begin the study. In total, he would spend seven years visiting Puharich at his foundation to undergo a series of unusual tests. Days would often begin, with Peter being strapped down into a chair and his head covered in a mesh of wires and electrodes to monitor his brain function as Puharich put him through his paces. In one test, Dr. Puharich bombarded Herkos with strobe lighting, then showed him a series of envelopes in which various objects had been placed, such as a butterfly or a safety pin, and invited him to guess what was in them. According to Buharich, 
Under the strobe lighting, Peter guessed the correct object every single time. Intriguingly, according to Buharich, when no strobe lighting was used, but Peter was allowed to touch the envelope, his success rate was still a remarkably high 80%. When only allowed to look at the envelope, this dropped markedly to 40%. By then, Peter was attracting the attention of other well-known parapsychological researchers, most prominently Dr. Joseph Ryan, who was responsible for coining the term extrasensory perception. Ryan, who ran a laboratory at the prestigious Duke University, was arguably the most credible scientist working in the field at the time and made frequent requests to test Peter himself, but Herkos refused his offer, claiming later that he'd been offended by Ryan's insistence that he sit a lie detector test as part of the study. In October 1958, Peter, who was then living in Miami, received a call from the Miami police on behalf of its head of homicide, Detective Lieutenant Tom Lipe. Detective Lipe's team had hit a dead end in a murder investigation, and after hearing that Herkos was living in the city, decided to reach out to him. Without being told anything of the crime, Herkos was invited to sit inside a blood-stained cab and simply tell the police if anything came to him. The cab had once belonged to 63-year-old Edward Sentner, who, unbeknownst to Peter, had been shot dead in it with a .22 bullet. A little irked by the whole thing, Peter nonetheless got inside the vehicle, then sat back and waited. After a short pause, he began to speak. He had a vision of a tattoo on a man's right arm, not the victims, the murderers. He was tall and slim too, and had a peculiar loping walk. A sailor perhaps, he said, who was often in Detroit and Havana. Then a name came to him. Smitty, he said, and there was something else. Another man, he said, dead in the Florida Keys. The officers present turned to each other in confusion, unsure of what Peter could possibly be talking about. Clearly, they thought, it had all been one big charade. Then the news came in a few days later. A Navy commander named John Stewart was found shot to death in an apartment in Key Largo. He'd also been shot with a .22 bullet, identical to the bullet used to kill the cab driver. As police investigated further, a man was eventually identified as a potential suspect for what was now a double murder investigation. His name wasn't Smitty exactly, but Charles Smith, a merchant seaman who, incredibly as it turned out, often shipped into Cuba and had spent time in prison in Detroit, Michigan. About the same time, a restaurant server in Miami contacted police to say that she'd overheard a man boasting one night about killing two men. After receiving a picture of the suspect from Michigan authorities, the police showed it to the server. She recognised the man instantly, who, it turned out, was tall and slim, with a tattoo on his arm, just as Peter had seemingly predicted. A few weeks later, 
Charles Smith was arrested for his involvement in an armed robbery and eventually put on trial for the murders in Miami and Key Largo. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Sunglasses, progressives and blue light lenses are also available. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams and contact lenses. Just answer a few quick questions online and they'll suggest some great-looking glasses that are totally personalised to fit your face and style. The best thing of all is Warby Parker's home try-on system, allowing you to order up to five pairs of glasses for free to try on at home, either for yourself or to get the advice of friends and loved ones before purchasing. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on programme. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days, with no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com forward slash unexplained. That's W-A-R-B-Y parker.com forward slash unexplained. It was four years later, in 1962, on the evening of June 14th, that Uris Slessers arrived at his mother Anna's home at 77 Gainsborough Street, an apartment block located in the Back Bay area of Boston, Massachusetts. 25-year-old Uris knocked on his mother's door but got no response from inside. It was strange that his mother would leave him waiting since it was her that insisted on Uris getting there early. That night, Anna had plans to attend a memorial service at her church to commemorate her fellow Latvians that were deported to Siberia by the government of the Soviet Union during the Second World War. She'd asked Yuris to take her there. After knocking again to no avail, Yuris headed back down to the pavement to wait for her there. Thirty minutes later, and there was still no sign of her. Suddenly concerned, Yuris returned to his mother's apartment. Hearing nothing from inside, he pounded on the door as hard as he could, but still nobody came. In desperation, Uris threw his shoulder against it, back and forth until eventually it flew open with a loud bang. Running inside, he almost stumbled into a chair that had been left out oddly in the middle of the hall. He called out again for his mother, but still there was no reply. The place was in complete darkness, except for a soft chink of light emanating from the kitchen. Uris made a quick sweep of the living room, then headed into the bedroom, where he found the dresser drawers had been left open, something his mother would never have done if she'd left the property. He headed back out into the hall and turned toward the light at the far end. With his heart pounding in his chest, he headed on toward the kitchen, and then he saw her. Fifty-five-year-old Anna Slezer's body was found lying outstretched on a runner on the kitchen floor, naked save for a blue taffeta housecoat left open at the front. 
Her left leg was lying stretched out, while the right was bent at the knee and positioned at almost a right angle to the other, leaving her completely exposed. The blue cord from her housecoat had been tied tightly around her neck, the ends of it seemingly left turned up to resemble a bow. Forensics later determined that she'd been sexually assaulted with an object. Anna Slezers would become the first in a series of similarly horrific crimes. Over the next 18 months, Nina Nichols, Helen Blake, Ida Erger, Jane Sullivan, Sophie Clark, Patricia Bissett, Mary Ann Brown, Marie Corbin and Joanne Graff would be found. Most were raped or sexually assaulted and then strangled to death and all were believed to be potential victims of a single vicious sex offender and murderer operating close to or within the Boston area. On January 4th, 1964, Mary Sullivan became the 11th woman suspected of being sexually assaulted and murdered by the same perpetrator, by then being referred to in the press as the Mad Strangler. Two weeks later, Peter Herkos received the call from Assistant Attorney General of Massachusetts, John Bottomley. As Bottomley explained, the police were struggling with the investigation and wanted to know if he would be interested in trying to help. Herkos was reluctant to get involved at first, having been asked to assist in another brutal and high-profile murder case in Virginia back in 1960, involving a couple and their two young children. Though Peter had apparently made a number of startlingly accurate predictions, he'd failed to identify the correct murderer and was publicly ridiculed for it in the press. But Bottomley persisted, and eventually, Herkos caved in. On January 29th, Peter Herkos landed in Providence, Rhode Island, to see what he could do. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 5, Episode 18, Learning to See, Part 1. The second and final part will be released next Friday, June 25th. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained the book and audiobook featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.